Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy, and I'm uh, privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And it's just a delight to, to get to worship uh, with you this morning here on uh, this uh, just beautiful sunny uh, Sunday morning. And um, if you are feeling new here, I'm going to be uh, in a room called the Fireside Room after our services. That's through these glass doors. It's just to the right. And I'd love to just spend a few moments in praying with you and hearing your story and just getting a little face time. Uh, I just would appreciate that so very much. And so if you'd like to do that, that's where I'll be afterwards. And um, our elders uh, and some of our staff are up here at uh, right in this section after our services for prayer. And so we just want you to feel welcomed. We want you to very quickly feel like this is your church family. And so uh, um, we're, we're just glad, glad to be together here this morning. So we're in a series over the New Testament book of Acts. We just study through, we just kind of have a large group Bible study. Uh, and that's what's going on here uh, right now. And um, this morning, we're going to explore... What, what sharing your faith and living your faith are like. Sharing your faith with your lips and living your faith with your life. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that really deals with that. And it's really important to have a grounded understanding of what it is we believe and then to also have a community to share that with because that goes together. Uh, there is a book written by uh, Michael Garber that's called The Fabric of Faithfulness. The Fabric of Faithfulness. And it's a study on enduring, resilient faith. He answers a really important question, and it's this. Why is it that some, having left undergraduate school enter the workforce and within five to ten years they've left their Christianity. Some Christians post undergraduate school enter the workforce within five to ten years they just they just lose their Christianity. Why is it that others don't? Why is it that others post undergraduate school enter the workforce and they're able to integrate their Christianity, and it becomes realized in their lives in a living way. What, what's, what causes the difference between the two? And this is what he found out. Almost without exception, those who integrated Christianity into their lives, three traits. Trait number one, they found a mentor to model what Christ's life looked like through their life. So a mentor to model, trait number one. Trait number two, they had peers to sharpen their understanding of who Jesus is and, and his call on their life. You know, as iron sharpens iron, so one believer sharpens another. And then thirdly, they had a, a robust, tough as nails Christian worldview. A worldview that could enter the world and understand and make sense and see reality as it's meant to be seen. And we talked a little bit about that last week, did we not? As we talked about what, what is a worldview? A worldview is kind of an overarching 
way of understanding and making sense of life. A worldview is really about answering four very key questions. How do we get here? What's the problem? What's the solution? How's this story end? What's the destiny? How do we get here? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It, this world is here at the creation of a loving, caring God who made all things visible and invisible. And human life constitute the pinnacle of his creation. We are made in the image of God. And what it means to be made in the image of God is that we represent God. What it means is that we serve God. And that God has delegated to human life um, vice regency. We are to rule his creation as faithful stewards. So that's how we got here. But that kind of leads to the question, what's the problem? And the problem is, instead of wanting to steward what belongs to God, we want to be God. And that is a deal-breaking question, what's the problem? Because there is a faith system that asserts that the reason why we have all the problems that we have in the world is that you don't, you don't think enough of your godness in you. That's the real problem. And you need to embrace the God inside of you and the divinity inside of you. I mean, that is a, that is a, a strongly asserted other worldview. And Christianity says, well, no, the problem with our world is that you think you're God. And you want to be in charge. And we've got 7.5 billion gods and goddesses scrambling for the steering wheel at the same time. No wonder there's chaos. Everybody wants to drive. What's the solution? The solution is that God so loved the world, he sent his own son to, as a victim of injustice who was put to death in an ugly, gruesome manner, crucifixion, as a substitute for our insurrection. That's the fix, because God is a God of justice, and he just doesn't turn a blind eye to uh, willful rebellion, and yet he's also a God of grace. So he provides the penalty that he demands. That's grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the solution, and only Christianity speaks of that. And then what's the destiny? What's all? Oh, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. Our destination is not an end, but a beginning. New heavens, new earth, new bodies. Forever serving and loving and worshiping. Praise be to Jesus. That's... That's the Christian worldview, you see. And so this, this Christian, Christianity is not just content for your spirit. Christianity is the declaration that God is renewing the heavens and the earth in a new way. And he started by the raising of his son. And one day, all will be as his resurrected son. And that's our destiny.
And so, so this message, this message, this worldview, accompanied by peers to sharpen and mentors to model, this is what the Apostle Paul did in the first century when he brought Christianity across the Roman Empire. Because in his missionary journeys, he left towns with spiritual communities, gatherings of people who were being shaped by a Christ-centered worldview, sharpened by their relationships with one another, and mentored by, by um, um, faithful not perfect, but faithful models of what Jesus Christ looked like. And so we see that particularly this morning as we turn to Acts chapter 14, our scripture passage today. I wanted to set up our scripture uh, by talking to you about the importance of sharing Christ with your lips and living Christ's life with your life and this necessity of possessing a Christ-centered worldview because we see this worldview, we see sharpening one another and mentoring and modeling all come together in Acts 14, uh, verses 8 through 18, which you'll find on page 923 of your church Bibles. Now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, 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 the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is God's word. So, we read these verses that are in the middle of what Bible teachers call Paul's first missionary journey. 
uh, Paul and Barnabas were part of a multi-ethnic church in Antioch of Syria. And it was a, a strong church. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit, broke that leadership up, selecting Paul and Barnabas to bring the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. And so Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14, somewhere around the year A.D. 45, which is about 14 years after Paul's conversion to Christ. Paul goes into two types of environments on this missionary journey. Uh, he goes, one type is a Hebrew setting, a synagogue, uh, a place of worship where his own people group gather. And then another setting is a non-Hebrew gathering, a pagan gathering. And that's where we see him today in Acts chapter 14. Now, in verses 1 through 7, Paul is in a place called Iconium, which is where he met this Hebrew people group that I told you about. He would go into the synagogue and typically Paul would show up and uh, he was a credentialed rabbinic scholar. He was a Pharisee and the leader of the synagogue group would note uh, Paul who had been schooled under the great Gamaliel and he would tell Paul, you know, you're on in two minutes. Come up and share a word of encouragement. Come preach to us. And Paul stood behind the podium and he preached from the Old Testament that Jesus was God's yes to all of the promises that had been prophesied uh, from Isaiah and in the Psalms. And so he would show up, he would preach, and then there would be two types of receptions. There would be those who would receive the word and then there would be those who would resist the word. And that's what happens in verses 1 through 7. To the point where the city was divided. Look at verse 4. The people of the city, that's Iconium, they were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And, and, and then what came next was persecution. That's verse 5. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they, that is the apostles, learned of it, and they escaped. They got out of town. So Paul would enter a synagogue, preach Christ. Many would believe. Others would resist. Persecution would follow, and they would be run out of town. And Luke tells us in Acts 14, verse 6, that they left Iconium and they went to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia. I had to practice that. Lycaonia, 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 huh? Lycaonia. How was your day at the office, Randy? Lycaonia. That's just what I say, right? My goodness. Pray for my wife. So they leave and they go into Lystra. Now, church family, there were cities in the Roman Empire that um, were quite sophisticated. Cultured, uh, arts, intelligentsia, education, power, elite, architecture, engineering, urban, refined, stylish, chic, erudite. Get it? Get it? When I say get it, you say got it, I'll say good. Get it? Good. Lystra was not that. 
okay? Um, let me compare it with an example from my own home state because I don't want to offend anybody else's own home state, all right? So there's Tulsa. Many of you know I grew up and was born in Tulsa. Now, Tulsa is an oil town. And Tulsa just, you know, exploded with oil money um, almost 100 years ago. And, you know, money buys cultured things. And so in Tulsa, if I took you to downtown Tulsa, you would see some amazing architecture. There's an Art Deco district in Tulsa. Now, I bet you didn't know that, did you? But, yeah, Okies are artists, I'm telling you. In fact, Tulsa was called the oil capital of the world because, at one time because there were so many oil companies. And Tulsa is also the home to the state's premier college preparatory high school, Holland Hall, where I happen to go. It's a swanky city, Tulsa. 300 miles west of Tulsa is Beaver, Oklahoma. How many of you have ever heard of Beaver, Oklahoma? Yeah, I see that one hand there from, yeah, maybe two, but, you know, there you go. See, Beaver, Oklahoma, population 1,500 uh, and falling. Um, it's in the Oklahoma panhandle. Now, but everybody's famous for something. And so here is Beaver, Oklahoma's claim to, <laughs> claim to fame. There it is. That's Beaver. You, you know what the Beaver's holding? Oh, well. Let's learn. So, <laughs> Beaver is the cow chip throwing capital of the world. And that's really all I want to say about that. Uh, they have a world championship uh, cow throwing uh, contest every year. It's uh, April 20th and 21st this year, uh, if you're interested. Uh, I'm working that weekend. I won't be able to make it. But So, there's Tulsa. And then there's Beaver, all right? There's Antioch, where the church was that commissioned Paul and Barnabas, this major urban city of the empire. And, and, and then there's Lystra. And that's where Paul and Barnabas go. Now, why Lystra? Well, Antioch or Lystra, when the gospel comes into a community, lives are changed. Because I can tell you, for however many differences there are between uh, 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 Tolsons and, and, and uh, uh, Beaverites, or, or from Antioch and Lystra, we all have common longings. We all have a common need. And the gospel satisfies that. And when the gospel comes into a community, lives are transformed and walls fall down. And a new community, a community of heaven, God's own community, is formed on earth as it is in heaven. And we get a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas walk into Lystra and they meet a man. And verse 8 describes him three times. Isn't that interesting? Three times he's described as disabled. Luke says, Luke's a physician. 
couldn't use his feet, crippled from birth, had never walked. Why didn't he just say it once? Because this is a very serious disability, that's why. And Luke wants us to make sure we understand. And, and just as Peter and John in Acts chapter 3 met a disabled man outside of Herod's temple, here Paul and Barnabas meet a disabled man outside the temple of Zeus. And just as Peter gazed into the man's eyes outside the temple of Jerusalem, so Paul gazes, looks intently, you see that there, uh, into the man's eyes outside the temple of Zeus. And just as Peter commanded for the man to rise in Acts chapter 3, so Paul commands with a loud voice in Acts chapter 14 for this man to rise. And just as the man in Acts chapter 3 leapt off his feet, so the man in Acts chapter 14 sprang up, it says. But here's where the symbol Similarities end because two different worldviews interpret the same event. Don't you see? You don't just respond to an event that happens, you respond to your interpretation of an event that has happened. And you and I read Acts chapter 14 knowing that this book is about the unstoppable acts of the resurrected King Jesus. And you and I read this knowing that the book of Acts is volume two of a two-part story, Luke, Acts, chronicled by Luke for a man named Theophilus, who is a Christian who wants his faith strengthened. And you and I read this knowing that, that Luke began the gospel of Luke assuring Theophilus that everything that was to follow was based on eyewitness accounts, highly researched. In fact, in Acts chapter 16, Luke joins the witnesses, which is why the story becomes we. We did this. We did that. So you see, this has Jesus' activity from first to last. That's how we're seeing this. That's not how the rustics in Lystra saw it. Look at verses 11 and 12. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Now, how did they come to that conclusion? Well, here's a little backstory. About 50 years before this event in Acts chapter 14, the Roman poet Ovid, O-V-I-D, Ovid, told about two gods of Greek mythology, Zeus and Hermes. And they visited Lystra disguised as humans. And no one, no one extended hospitality. No one. Except one couple named Bacchus and Philemon. Bacchus and Philemon. Not the Philemon of the New Testament. Just another person whose name was Philemon. And they were rewarded by having their hospitable home transformed into a temple palace while everybody else in Lystra had their homes leveled. 
Well, these folks weren't going to make that mistake again. So, so they call Barnabas Zeus. They call Paul Hermes. Hermes. Hermes was like the Greek messenger god. So Paul was doing the talking. So that's how they identified them. And they call for the priest of Zeus who gets garlands and oxen to be sacrificed, right? For hospitality's purposes. Verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So Barnabas and Paul are watching all of this and they're seeing the joy that people have and the attentiveness that they uh, possess toward this miracle that has taken place and they're smiling and everybody's smiling and sharing and talking and arrangements, arrangements are being made in local dialect. Lycaonian, which Paul and Barnabas can't speak. And so then all of a sudden, you know, these animals arrive and this priest emerges from the temple with a knife for sacrifice. And, and how do Paul and Barnabas respond to, to their acts of worship? I mean, do they, uh, do they savor this over-the-top affirmation? Do, do they change their handles to at Zeus and at Hermes and retweet a few lines on social media? You know, crushing it in Lister, things like that. No. No, no, they, 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 they're trying to watch. They're kind of, kind of reading the room, and they're trying to figure out. And then, they, then they put two and two together, and it's like, ah, stop. I'm not Zeus, Barnabas says. I'm not Hermes. Talk Greek. Let's talk Greek. And they rip their clothing in grief. Why? Well, because of their you know, committed Hebrew monotheistic background out of which came a faith in Christ. And, and they're, they're straining to explain that, you know, they're not, they're just human instruments through which the divine power of the one true God worked. We're only humans like you, verse 15 Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And then Paul proceeds to share good news. See, good news. But here's what I want you to pay attention to. This is really important. If you look at verses 15 and 16 and 17, Jesus doesn't come up. Paul doesn't quote from the Hebrew Scriptures as he did in chapter 13. He doesn't mention the prophets. There's no Old Testament Scripture here. And do you know why? Because there's no common point of reference with the folks from Lystra. See, so sometimes our attempts at sharing our faith falter not because we don't know the word. I know you know the word. I know you know the word. Not because we lack courage. This church family is extremely courageous and bold. It's not because we haven't prayed. I know we're praying. 
I know we're praying right now for who we're going to invite uh, for Easter services in just two weeks. I know you we are. But sometimes our attempts at sharing our faith falter because we come to the conversation about faith with a worldview that our audience does not possess. And that's why it's important for us to understand the four questions that I talked about at the beginning of this message. But we need to tackle them in order, you see. In, in Acts 13, Paul did not have to convince his Hebrew audience in one God. You know, how did we get here? Well, they, they were on common ground with that question. I mean, they have the book of Genesis. And they, they really didn't have a problem with the second question. What's the problem? See, well, the, the, the folks in the synagogues knew that with rebellion against the holy God, that's the problem, see? Paul just needed to get to the solution, arguing from the scriptures, which the folks in the synagogue re received and accepted, that Jesus was, in fact, God's promised Messiah, and, and that he is both the solution and the destiny. See, that's, that's Acts 13. But in Acts chapter 14, these are pagans. There, there's no Hebrew or monotheistic background. Uh, they, they, they've got multiple gods. And so what's Paul's common point of reference? See? Creation. Nature. The God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, verse 15. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, verse 17. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. You see? Paul says to the residents of Lystra, go outside. Look at the beauty of the Taurus Mountains there in, in, in southern Turkey. How do you account for that beauty? What's the meaning of it all? What's the reason we exist? Every one of us live for a reason to get out of bed. So is the reason you're getting out of bed, is that true, lasting, and worthy? Paul offers a truer version of reality. He talks about nature and, and, you know, the predictability of nature. Rains from heaven, fruitful seasons. Listen, laws of nature come from a legislator. Not multiple gods who each govern a section on earth. Often in Greek mythology, they were, had adolescent-like behavior and tribal deities. No, Paul speaks of the one God who governs all. One God who made all. One living God who has uncontested power. And notice Paul says, is the source of all gladness. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the scripture says. Now how do you think Paul would speak to our university community here? Huh? To, to those you know, who have no background in Christianity or, or, or Hebrew faith or Judaism or any type, just, just secular. How, what, would, what would we hear him say? Would we hear him talk about being in bondage to false gods? Addictive idols? Hurts? Habits? 
hang-ups in which we seek for freedom and escape and validation. Some in our community are seeking validation via tenure. Our identity is wrapped up in getting our academic degree. And that's, a, you know, academic degrees are good things. But they need the gospel news that tenure or not, law school or not, master's degree or not, acceptance into the business or the med school or not, PhD or not, God is the ultimate source of gladness in life. And that's what we in here have in common with our community this longing for purpose, this longing to be loved, this longing to, to live without having to prove your worth. And only the gospel satisfies this. Hmm. I think Paul would say that. But you know, it is so hard to dislodge someone who is anchored into their worldview. And that's what we see in verse 18. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. I mean, they are stubborn about their worldly. They, they, they've been cramming this miracle into how they see the world. And this is difficult. I, look, we can read Acts 13 and 14 in maybe 10 minutes, you know. But these two chapters actually represent Around two years. This takes time. So it's not, like, it's not like Paul breezed into town and dazzled them with his rhetoric and then had them fill out decision cards. It took time. And talk about misunderstanding. All right? Well, then it swings the other way. Look at verse 19. Well, if you're not Zeus and Hermes, well, then who are you? And if you're not the good guys, well, then you must be the bad guys. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Talk about a tough day at the office. Dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I mean, in verse 18, they want to worship him. In verse 19, they try to kill him. Verse 20 says the disciples, the Christians, they, they gathered about him, his, the peers. And when they gathered about him, he rose up. And, and scholars bicker with each other about whether Paul was unconscious and revived or dead and resurrected. And I don't know. Here's what I want to know. This is the important question. What would make you go back into the very town that tried to kill you and leave you for dead? That's what happened. He rose up and he entered the city. And then on the next day, he went on his way to Derby, the next town. But, but see, you see what these disciples are witnessing? They're witnessing not just the truest story of reality, but they're witnessing what it looks like in the life of someone who displays Christ. And I believe that's why we're reading this today. Christianity is not just content for the mind. 
I mean, these folks from Beaver, Oklahoma, they may have been from the countryside, but they weren't dull. They could, they could tell a man of God when they saw one. And verses 22 says that, you know, after they had finished their preaching in Derby, here's the amazing thing that happened. So Derby is about one week's walk from Paul's hometown, Tarsus. And then Tarsus is about another week's walk from Antioch of Syria, where this whole missionary tour started. So he's only two weeks from home when he gets to Derby, And that's not very long in first century travel. All right? But notice what Paul does. After he leaves Derby, he doesn't go east. He goes back west. He retraces his steps. He returns to Lystra, returns to Iconium. He returns to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many hardships. And I know you know what that's like. Because we read your prayer requests. Last Tuesday night in our elders meeting, we spent the first hour reading and praying over the requests that you filled out in services last Sunday. And we prayed, we had prayer time for those among our church who are unemployed. Prayer, we prayed for a, a, a family for a healthy pregnancy after a recent miscarriage. Prayer for healing from melanoma. Prayer for someone whose family member has stage four cancer. Prayer for recovery from alcoholism. Prayer for friends going through divorce. Prayer for unity. Someone from our church asked that just their nuclear family might you know, be united and, and so that there might be peace so that we can live together as one. And you know what? Those are just the anonymous prayer requests. In verse 22, Paul just tells it straight. Through many, many hardships, tribulations, struggles, we enter the kingdom of God. Many. And mysteriously, these trials and hardships and sufferings serve as a kind of D-Day invasion. A, a, a World War II type storming of Normandy Beach as God's people broken from life's hardships, are still establishing Christ's presence on earth. Just as the Apostle Paul was, was leaving churches just through his broken body, just as Jesus himself established his kingdom in his broken body on the cross. And when those people from Lystra saw someone like Paul who took a headshot with a football-sized stone. When they see him get back up and go back into the very city to show love to the angry residents who persecuted him, that other worldly love 
just overwhelmed them. And he didn't just go back into the city. He, he sustained their community by appointing mentors, which the Bible called elders, leaders of these communities. And I mean, they're going, I've never, I've never seen anything like this before. A few years later, Paul would write the letter to the Galatians. And Galatians was written to the folks in Acts chapters 13 and 14. That's the audience. And Paul says in Galatians 4, 13 and 14, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, what's that? What was that bodily ailment? Some scholars argue that the bodily ailment just was the fact that he'd been bashed over the skull with a stone. And yet, I mean, he came anyway. And can you picture this in your mind? You know, this, this you know, stump over man and, you know, crooked nose, unibrow, bowed legs, bandaged up, bruised, scabs, limps to the podium. And, and don't think that they weren't as concerned about appearances back then as we are today. And they see this hunched over guy come limping. And they're thinking, what does he got to say? And then he opens his mouth. And it's like heaven came to earth. And though my condition was a trial to you, a trial to have to look at, you did not scorn or despise me, Paul said, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And I'm telling you, those who had once worshipped Zeus and Hermes, they, the, the light bulb finally came on because they thought to myself, I, I would never do that for Zeus. Why is he doing that for Christ? Hmm. This is why our big idea today, the lesson that I want you to get, if you don't get anything else, is simply this. Luke is telling us in Acts 14, share Christ and show Christ. Share Christ with your lips and show Christ with your life. Some will accept. Some will reject. But all will see Christ through you. That's the message here. Many of you know that this past week, the, the, the brilliant scientist and physicist Stephen Hawking died. Um, you know, he held the same academic chair, um, the Lucasian chair of mathematics at Cambridge, the same chair as Sir Isaac Newton. Um, and, and part of what accentuated his, just his brilliant contribution uh, to science was his resilience and his endurance with his bodily condition. 
with all respect for his contributions as a scientist, um, Stephen Hawking was a better scientist than he was a philosopher. Uh, on page five of his book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking wrote, philosophy is dead. That was, his, that was his perspective of philosophy. But the problem was that his book then was a philosophy of science. <laughs> um, and you know, Hawking held that the existence of gravity made God unnecessary. Ironically, Isaac Newton believed the opposite. Isaac Newton understood gravity and thought, how amazing of God to do it that way. Hawking held an unnecessary rift between faith and science. But the conflict is never between faith and science. It's not. Science, Latin, scientia, knowledge, to know. The conflict is not between faith and science. The conflict is between Christian theism and scientism. Scientism is the worldview that only science is the pathway to truth. And Christian theism would say, well, there are other pathways to truth as well. Um, Stephen Hawking once spoke these words. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now, I just grieve when I read that quote. Church family, you are not a broken down computer. What did we sing earlier? I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. You're not a machine. And removing God from the equation does nothing to eliminate the problem that caused someone to doubt God's existence in the first place. You know, you, you may remove God, but the, but the world is still broken. And things still are not the, the way they're supposed to be. And, and furthermore, you know, if you accept a Godless, physical-only universe, the idea that things are not as they should be makes little sense because how can things go wrong when there's no right way for it to be in the first place? The Christian gospel proclaims a truer version of reality. And I wish that Stephen Hawking had accepted that. How did we get here? Colossians 1 for by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's the problem? The problem is we're lost. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we're lost, and he came to seek and save. He's the solution. The solution is Jesus. And our destiny in him is life. As Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Well, then Jesus would say, 
follow me. Blessed Lord. Blessed Lord Jesus, thank you that uh, you, are, uh, you are in the answer to every one of these questions. You who made all that is seen and unseen. You who have not left us lost, but you have come. And we gather here as a found people, a rescued people, with a destiny that will one day be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies apart from the presence of evil or brokenness. Oh, God, I can't wait for that day. God, may that day inform this day and all who we love to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And the church said, amen. Thank you.